0: Welcome into another episode of the Ots and Audible's podcast. I'm your host, Eric Scopel. It is Thursday. It's the time of the week where we bring on an expert for the opposing school. Chat it up. It's one of my favorite parts of every week, and I think one of the things that makes this such a strong network is uh, the esteemed guests that we can have, the experts from opposing schools that we can bring in. And this week, myself and Jared Mack, who's also on the show today, Matt had an obligation that popped up last minute. So Jared, filling in here, hopefully... You're better than my, like, fifth-grade substitute teacher. But we are joined today <laughs> by <All> Coop. Right.
1: <laughs>
0: this is whatever her name was was great. Uh, by Cooke fans, Jamie Vinnick. Jamie, first off, appreciate you being here making some time.
2: Yeah, no problem. Appreciate you guys having me.
0: Yeah, this is going to be fun. Uh, we're going to start with some stuff that's maybe not as fun, which is what's been going on in Pullman that has taken, I think, a lot of the national – uh, headlines. Um, I won't ask you to break through all this stuff because I think it's been actually very thoroughly reported. Uh, Kyle Bonagora had a fantastic story, I thought, an um, ESPN by two or three weeks ago that ran through a lot of what has transpired there. But I, I want to ask you kind of about the landscape, sh- you know, shift in Pullman. Uh, Nick Rolovich out. Jake Dickert now acting head coach. A reshuffling from the coordinating position on. I think both sides of the ball kind of redistributing some of the responsibilities. Um, has this team looked for starters like schematically does it feel different at all culturally does it feel different at all Um, just kind of what has the outcome of what's taken place up there been?
2: yeah so I think the first big difference has been obviously you know Jake Dickert's never been a head coach so not at any level Um, so this is his first time as a head coach but when it comes to the actual coaching staff the big difference is is that uh, you know, during the, that winning streak that Washington State was on, they had won three in a row after a one-and-three start. Uh, Craig Stutzman, who was the quarterback's coach, he had started calling plays. And, and in that time, with wins over Cal, Oregon State, and Stanford, the offense looked a little more fluid. There was a little bit more of a rhythm, a little bit more of a, uh, you know, there, there was more of a, an insistence on just getting the ball out quick rather than long-developing plays. and So I think that was a big difference. Uh, Brian Smith had been calling plays. Um, and then when Stutzman, obviously, he was one of the guys terminated. Smith comes back in you know the first game against BYU was a lot of what we had seen in the prior week you know there wasn't a whole lot of creativity uh Jane Delora looked a a little shaky at times um but then you know against Arizona State it, it looked like nothing had changed I mean they they ran some really really creative stuff with play action um with just having Delora get the ball out and then just how the game played out you know they ended up running it 15 16 times with both of their running backs something that you know, hasn't been seen in Pullman in 20 years, you know, with the air raid, no one was ever running the ball. So I think the big thing, and Dickard actually was on the radio earlier saying that he does want to run the ball a little more, um, which I think kind of goes into the fact that Washington State has two really good running backs. I mean, Max Borgie's kind of the, the known commodity. He's been around for a few years um, and has really emerged as a top back. But Deion McIntosh, former Notre Dame back, uh, he really stepped up last year in the shortened season with Borgie Hurt and is kind of just, carried over that role to where he's still getting 10, 15 carries a game uh, or touches a game. I should say just based off his performance um, in terms of scheme though, it's, they're still running the run and shoot on offense. Uh, Dickert's still going with the four uh, 2 defense, you know, throwing a lot of different looks, uh, especially with pass rushes. You know, he's, he's big on going with certain pass rushing schemes. A lot of times they'll on third down and long, they'll run four edges out there with no defensive tackles and just with the job that you're going to get to the quarterback. Um, and then culturally, you know, I think based off what the players said, the first couple days was tough. Um, you know, I, I think they had to adjust, you know, you, so for those who maybe aren't sure, head coach Nick Rolovich uh, co-offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach, Craig Stutzman, offensive line coach, Mark Weber, uh, defensive tackles coach, Ricky Longo and cornerback coach, John Richardson. So those are the five coaches who were not in compliance with the, the vaccination mandate and were no longer allowed to coach at Washington state. So I think for a lot of the guys, they've had to make some quick adjustments to, you know, to kind of getting past the fact that those coaches are gone. And I think the, I think Dicker and the the other people kind of who made the decision, they did a good job bringing in some familiar faces of guys who know the run and shoot. They brought in Dennis McKnight, longtime offensive line coach, and, um, and Dan Morrison, longtime quarterbacks coach, and guys who had worked together before. Um, and the message from them has pretty much been, we're not here to replace your coaches, we're here to help. And I think the players have responded well to that. I, I think that they, I don't think they would have responded well if these guys had come in and tried to change everything that they knew. They were just there to help. Um, and, then, and then outside of that, they promoted a lot from within. So Smith took over offensive coordinator duties again. Uh, they put Jordan Malone, who was an analyst, into the cornerback's uh, coaching position. He'd been with the cornerbacks for two years as, a, as an analyst. And then A.J. Cooper, their edge coach, just moved over to defensive tackle. So I think the fact that they kept a lot of coaches on staff and didn't try and do this massive reshuffle, I,
1: I think that helped the culture a lot. Going off making adjustments for just the team overall. Um, from a broader perspective, you know, how is the fan base adjusted to this? Obviously, it's a really, you know, it's a whirlwind of a situation and a lot of, you know, politicized movements. But, you know, just overall, how is the fan base taking it all?
2: Well, it depends on which side of the fan base you ask. Uh, I mean, it was <laughs> pretty much everyone who was uh, against Rolovich's vaccination status or, didn't, or thought he should get vaccinated. Well, they were content when everything came to fr- – I mean, and I should say, I don't think anyone – When no matter where your stance was on this, no one wanted this as the result. Nobody nobody wanted, uh, you know, to lose five coaches in the middle of the season, and especially for a a team that's been through a lot, you know, a senior class that's experienced two player deaths, you know, now two coaching changes, a pandemic, uh, a teammate getting shot earlier this year. Um, I don't think that anyone wanted this to be the result, but I think with the fan base, you know, there's a lot of people who said this was what had to be done and that it was inevitable that he was not going to uh, you know, choose to get the vaccine, and this was the end result, and then you've got the fans who are very unhappy with, you know, the, how it all played out, they think he should still be the coach, but a lot of that anger is, is directed at the mandate rather than Washington State itself, but I think there's been a a pretty, there's been a divide in the result, and you know, how things played out, and what happened, but I do think there's been a lot of rallying around Dickert from the fan base, I think a lot of the fans do like him, you know, just based off really the progress he'd made as a defensive coordinator, you know, in all of his interviews, he's very, very astute, very well-spoken. He he definitely, there's not fans, I should say, there's not fans that are like, Dickert's terrible, we don't want him here. Um, There's just a lot, there's still some frustrations of how the whole role of that situation played out.
0: Just with Dickert and, and kind of his role here, you mentioned never been a head coach before. Can you, can you give our listeners maybe an idea more of his background? Obviously, as a defensive coordinator, he had to rise to the coaching ranks due to some sort of prowess in some area. I'm just curious kind of what led to that and, and his position and, and, and is he somebody that's been around Washington State for a while?
2: Yeah, so with Coach Dickert, he actually he was a receiver in college at Wisconsin Stevens Point, uh, made the decision to stay on and, and, and be a grad assistant for his coach there. But his coach told him, you're coaching on defense because his brother was an offense alignment, so he didn't want him working with his brother. And from there, he just kind of – he turned that into a lot of Division II jobs. So uh, he worked at, you know, North Dakota State – or FCS, I should say. North Dakota State, Minnesota State, Mankato, which is D2. Um, you know, a couple other stops along the way. When uh, Craig Bull, the coach not Wyoming, when he got hired, he moved over to Wyoming with Coach Bull. Um, and then when Nick Rolovich got hired, you know, Dickert had put out some NFL players at Wyoming. They'd had some very good defenses. And he kind of tapped him as the guy, so he's he's pretty new to Pullman, and that he came with the Rolovich staff. Um, in fact, there's no one no one on this current staff at Washington State predates Rolovich, so there's no there were no holdovers from the Leach staff or anything like that. These are all guys who have been here year and a half, two years. So he just he, he was good at Wyoming, and Rolovich recognized that, and wanted him to come be his defensive coordinator, and that's how he ended up here.
1: I just you know from. Obviously, Diggert has had, uh, you know, step, stepped up as a leader of sorts after Rolovich's departure. Has there been anybody inside the locker room? like it, Obviously, it's a veteran group you have at Washington State. Um, has it been more of a group effort, or, or is there specific individuals that have really stepped up and, and tried to take this under their belt as well? In terms of players? Yeah.
2: Well, Dickert, the first thing he did right after that first game is he gave a, a huge praise to Max Borgie. And, you know, Borgie's on-field performance speaks for itself and has for a few years, but... You know, he he made sure to point out that Max really, really stepped up as a leader and really, you know, kind of was a vocal pl- uh, piece of that. Um, Abe Lucas and Liam Ryan, a couple of veteran offensive tackles. They, they've been – they're vocal. They're leaders. Um, they've been around the block here. Uh, Ron Stone on defense is about as vocal a person as you're going to find on and off the field. I mean, he's he's talkative. I think he's helped kind of keep the mood light. And, and then Jaden galore You know, I, I think the big issue with Jaden last year that a lot of people noticed was He was quiet. And Jaden said that himself, that he didn't really talk a whole lot. He didn't want to step on the toes of the veterans or the coaches. Um, But, you know, he's matured a lot. He's taken on a leadership role. And I think he's been a key in rallying these guys together. Jaden was very, very close with with Rolovich and Stutzman. Um, You know, he released a statement after saying that the team was very unhappy with the decision, but also made the point that, you know, that this team and this program is bigger than one person and they're going to surge on. Um, So I think, you know, for a 19, 20-year-old that's had his own maturity issues, I think him stepping into a a voice of – a leadership voice, you know, really recently and all throughout the season I think has been a huge help.
0: I think it was a surprise this week when on Monday Mario Cristobal suggested that Washington State has been as big of a rival since his time arriving in Eugene as any school. And I think part of that might have been it's on the heels of what just happened over the weekend, pretty fiery stuff. We all kind of understand the implications there. He's not wrong, though, if you look at just how competitive these games have been. Um, Oregon, in the last two games, Washington State had leads in both of them. Against in 2019, they were in a really good position to win that football game. I think people forget Camden-Lewis had to come, and maybe people in Pullman don't, people in Eugene do, maybe. Uh, Oh, we don't forget. (laughs) (laughs) Camden-Lewis had to come out and and kick a a, a crucial, a, you know, a crucial clutch field goal to to win that one, and then the four meetings before that, Washington State had won, and um, in, in the in the middle there were some really lopsided dominant wins by the Cougars. Um, you know, in fact, if you go back since 2015, I think only Stanford has four wins, um, along with Washington State over Oregon in that span. So Washington State and Oregon have developed a rivalry recently. Um, what is how does that, I guess? First off, does that comment by Cristobal surprise you in the context of the game itself? I think we both understand the implications from the Washington game that just took place. But and then secondly, how does like what does this game mean in Pullman? You know, does it feel like it carries similar weight?
2: You know, I I don't think it's what he said is surprising necessarily. Again, in especially in context of what happened over the weekend and and all of last week and the comments that Jimmy Lake made and and all that. Um, but I do think that there there is a point to that. You know, Oregon has had some very good teams over the last few years, and it, it seems that Washington State has always just been a little bit of a thorn in their side, you know, especially you look at uh, the 2018 team, you know, Justin Herbert's uh, junior year, and, you know, that that was a really good Oregon team. And obviously the Cougars had all the energy of game day and Gardner Minshew and, and all that. Um, I think that it, it's looked at a little bit differently, I think, when, he, when the Cougars look at it. I think there's a great deal of respect for Oregon um, amongst Cougar players, fans, everyone. I mean, they you can't you can't deny what Oregon has done the last few years. You know, back to back Pac-12 champs. If if they win this game, there's a good chance they'll win it a third straight year. Um, I do think if you ask any Cougar fan, they're going to say Washington's their biggest rival, and that's hmm. geography. That's the fact that the Cougs can't beat them. The fact <laughs> that between 2016 and 2018, Washington State was went away from the north and lost the apple cup every single time to keep them out of a division title so i think when if you look at for the cougars who their biggest rival in that sense has been it's been washington but i do think that there is something to be said about how these games with oregon have played out in the sense that you know the cougs had to win all of these to be in contention um you know you look at 2018 that season is looked at differently without that win on game day i mean that was quite frankly the biggest day in program history for a lot of reasons in this uh, with getting college game day the first time and just How that game played out, uh, you know, I think that 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 season is looked upon. Gardner Minshew's legacy at Washington State is looked upon differently without that game. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, now granted, everything else would have played out the same in the sense that the Cougs would have had to win the Apple Cup, to win the North, but that was such an iconic game and moment that I do think there is something to be said with how important beating Oregon has been to Washington State. You know, a lot of people will tell you that the thing that turned this program around from being an absolute dumpster fire. Was in 2015 going down to Otson and winning. I mean, and granted, Oregon without uh, without Vernon Adams in that game, and you know maybe some other pieces. But I think a lot of Cougar fans will tell you that beating a Ducks team, you know, nine months removed from a national championship appearance, that meant a lot to the program, and it gave the sense of confidence that you know maybe it wasn't the top of the line 11 12 win Oregon team, but still to go on the road and beat Oregon and Otson, that wasn't something Washington State did. They didn't go and win big road games. And I think if you look at what happened after that in terms of what the Cougars were able to do the next few years, that's the win that turned the program kind of around. So I think in, in a lot of ways, beating Oregon has been a a big part of what Washington State's been able to do, um, in terms of how they've been able to find success. And I think it's been a confidence builder when they've done it, just because of the reputation Oregon has built. I mean, it's one thing if you beat Oregon State eight years in a row, who cares? It's Oregon State. I mean, they you're expected to beat Oregon State or they beat Stanford uh, five years in a row, all right, it's Stanford. You beat Oregon four years in a row, I'm like, oh, wow, you beat Oregon four years in a row. Like, that that holds some weight rather than beating on, you know, the, the lower end of the Pac-12.
1: In your opinion, you know, what makes Washington State a thorn in Oregon's side? Because it's true, you know, we go through the history of it and the last five, six years, it's it's been a really close game almost, you know, and and Oregon's probably been favored in most of them too, but they're clearly a thorn in their side. So what 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 do you think they do that makes them that?
2: Yeah, well, I I think you have to point out the fact that two of those wins came against two of the only bad Oregon teams of the last decade. I mean, the the 17 and 8, or 16 and 17 teams were were not good Oregon teams by comparison. Um, So I do think that had a factor, but I I think a lot of it was just Mike Leach seemed to know something. And realistically, if you look at what Leach did against most of the Pac-12, the only teams that could stop him were Cal, UW, and Utah. I mean, no one else, I mean, he beat everybody uh, consistently, and, and you know, a team would get him here or there, but those were the three teams that consistently gave him issues because of their schemes. And I just think that what Leach was able to do with the quarterback play that Washington State seems to always have, it just ended up being a good matchup for him. And, and I do think there's a, to some degree, the name Oregon, as I said, it holds some weight. So it's easier to fire up a team playing Oregon than it is to play, you know, Arizona or Colorado. You see the name Oregon, and you think a lot of the guys have been playing these last couple of years, well, when they're 16 years old, they remember the Anthony Thomas and the Michael James and all these high-flying Oregon teams so it just means a little more to play and beat Oregon because of the reputation they built whereas you beat Arizona you beat Arizona la de da it's you know I, I think for for a lot of reasons you know there, there could have been a little extra you know a little extra energy a little extra fire because a lot of these players at this age that's what they remember they remember the high-flying you know all the the 60 points a game, the uniforms, the, the wins from Oregon. And I think there may be, maybe was a little extra, a little extra oomph in, in there sometimes for good players.
0: I wanted to get, I want to now break down this game a little bit more in depth from a offensive and defense perspective. I want to start when Oregon's on the, I guess, has the football and Washington state's on defense. I would imagine, I kind of know what your answer is going to be, but the, the, the strength of this defense is it's front seven. Is that fair to say?
2: It is and it isn't. The strength of this defense is forcing turnovers. Otherwise, it's you know it's hit or miss. Um, quite frankly, I would almost say it's the secondary, which sounds bizarre considering how bad the Wazoo secondary has been lately. But yeah, uh, over the last six games, they've only given up I think four passing touchdowns. Um, and, and and full disclaimer: Pac-12 quarterback play this year is not very good as a whole. So it's not like they're holding Andrew Luck and Marcus Mariota. They're holding. Chance Nolan and, uh, you know, Tanner McKee. Um, but anyways, I, I think the secondary has taken some really big strides. I mean, they were terrible in 2019. And, and it's, you know, it's harsh, but it's true. I mean, you look at some of the games they they got burned on, you know, the, the UCLA nightmare that no Cougar fan ever wants to relive, giving up 67 points uh, and letting DTR throw for 600 yards, whatever it was. But the secondary has taken so so many strides. You know, they've got good corner play. They've got big corners. That was always a problem. They had five, nine corners. You stick them on a six, four receiver, you know what's going to happen. They've got big corners. They've got veteran safeties. Um, And I think a lot of credit goes to Mark Banker, the safeties and nickels coach, who's taken some of these, these guys who have been in the program a few years, but has really made them kind of mold them into better players. George Hicks, Daniel Isom, Armani Marsh standing out. These are all guys who've been in the program three, four years, but they were always just, okay whereas now they've been contributors and then Derek Langford and Jalen Watson have become very good cornerbacks on the outside using size using strength the front seven the weakness comes up the middle um, they're very very small in the interior and they don't have a lot of size I don't think they, they do not have a 300 pounder on the defensive line um, and that has caused them some problems you get through a run heavy team you know they, they tend to get gashed Oregon State ran through them uh, BYU ran through them and now granted in turn they played well against Cal uh, they played well against Arizona State's uh, rushing attack, albeit without Rashad White. Um, but you know, I think if you're looking at one positional group rather than a, like a front seven or a secondary, the edges is Washington State's strength. They've got two really, really good edges. Ron Stone, in my slightly biased opinion, is probably the best edge in the conference, not named Kayvon Thibodeau. Um, I mean, he's what he has done this year is just—I mean, he blows up plays, and, and he's a good tackler. He's their highest graded. Uh, player and run defense on pro football focus um, and, and Jackson's Jackson's still getting there with consistency you know that he'll go stre- uh, stretches where you don't see him as much but he's kind of in that same he's very disruptive when he gets going and they can go four or five deep I mean they'll, they'll put in guys like Willie Taylor Quinn Roth Andrew Edson a uh, true freshman actually and these guys will get into the backfield and, and they'll disrupt you know the flow of the offense so Um, I would say the secondary is probably an overall strength over the front seven, but the edge position is their number one strength on defense.
0: The reason I was making the assumption is you'd say the front seven was because of stone and then Jihad woods, who I think historically is, I think fourth all time in tackles at Washington state fourth in the conference right now, um, behind, I know Noah Sewell is, I think just ahead of an Oregon player. Um, that's why my head went there. I wanted to ask you though, specifically now just about stopping Oregon's run attack. Um, how much of a concern is that? Is that the chief concern of this defense? Because you look at what Oregon has done this year on the ground, it has been very impressive. No, I think no performance may be more impressive than what they did in Seattle over the weekend where everyone in the stadium knew you weren't throwing the football. And you knew that even if you don't really know how to play football because you recognize – a ball that's thrown into that into the air with that yeah. kind of wind, <laughs> that kind of rain, probably not getting to its intended target nine times out of ten. And Oregon certainly had issues throwing at Washington did as well. But Oregon went out there despite that and ran for 329 yards. Travis died quite the day. Is that the big concern for Washington State? Does that feel like that's kind of the key to winning this game for Washington State? They can create some ability to limit that run game? Um, or, or I guess is there something else that feels bigger to you?
2: No, it's that, 100%. Uh, for Washington State to win, they have to get Oregon behind the sticks. Um, you know, if they let Oregon get into the second and three, third and two situations, it's going to be tough to win because Travis Dye is an incredibly capable running back. Um, you know, he's coming off a massive week against Washington. And, and I think that if you look at the games, the Cougars have lost for the most part. There's other factors. There's been other factors involved, um, quarterback health being one of them. But the one constant is they've struggled to stop the run. Um, you know, BYU ran all over. I mean, Tyler Algier almost had 200 yards. Uh, you know, they actually did okay for a while against Oregon State. And then Oregon State realized, wait, we should just run the ball a bunch. And B.J. Baylor <laughs> and Deshaun Fenwick just gashed them. Uh, ended up with over 300 yards. You know, there there have been occasions where they've looked good. I mean, they, you know, full disclaimer, USC and Stanford, not exactly the the juggernauts of rushing attacks, but they shut down both of those teams. They performed well against Cal. They performed very well. I think um relative against Arizona State in terms of, you know, the running backs of that team didn't really break off runs again with the the uh the note that Rashad White did not play and it was Traynham and, and Nada. Um but yeah, if they can't slow down die um and, and get Oregon behind the six, they will have a very tough time winning
1: this game. Obviously Washington State leads the Pac twelve in turnovers with twenty this year. You know, you know, what what makes them so good in that area? You know, The other week against Arizona State, I think they had five forced turnovers. Um, obviously, that helps their add to their total. But, again, forcing five turnovers isn't just luck. Like, that's clearly a skill-based thing. So, you know, what have they done this year, and, and how have they been so good at forcing turnovers? They, You know, they rip at the ball.
2: I mean, it's every play, someone's in there punching at the ball. And I think that's – it's been an emphasis. And if you look at, you know, the Alex Brinch defenses in Leach for a couple of Leach's years, that's what they did, too. You know, they'd give up a ton of yards. And this defense, they give up a handful of yards, but they make up for it by getting the ball back. And, and I think there is, there, is a, uh, there is an emphasis on that. And they do it in practice and they do it in games. Of You swarm to the football and you punch at it. Uh, and that's how they force so many fumbles. In terms of interceptions, um, a big part of that comes from Ron Stone and Brennan Jackson. You know, if, if you look at the Arizona State game, both interceptions come because Jaden Daniels is flush from the pocket and he feels the pressure and, and is forced into a bad throw. So I think it's, it's a combination of, you know, just that emphasis on ripping at the ball and getting the ball back. And then also an emphasis on getting to the quarterback, forcing him out of the pocket. I mean, I would say a good number of their interceptions this year have come with a quarterback on the run. There's been some, some that have just been perfect coverage um and a guy's in a good position or a guy makes a really good play, but a lot of them have come because you know they flush the quarterback. He's on the run. He's trying to make something happen. Um, and you know a corner comes underneath the router. There's a linebacker sitting in the middle of the zone. Doesn't he? Doesn't see ball ends up in his hands. It's a pick.
0: Run and shoot offense. First off, I don't think I know of many other schools, at least the Power Five, that run that offense. Um,
2: I don't think there is one.
0: I didn't think so either, but I was going to let you correct me if I was wrong because I didn't want to have another thing where I assumed you were going to say the front seven and then you were going to be like, actually, (laughs) Vanderbilt runs it or something. And I was like, oh. I
2: I don't. I think they're the only – they might be the only offense in college football that runs it. It's a very unique style.
0: And and that segues into what I wanted to get to of just the unique nature that it's a unique offense and the quarterback happens to be somebody who's not foreign to it and it's somebody who's a second-year quarterback, at at least at this level, and that's because Jaden DeLora – ran it at St. Louis in Hawaii. Um, and so he comes in and it's, again, it's a, it's an offense that is a novelty. It's an offense that Oregon won't face all year. And its quarterback happens to be somebody that has like half a, I don't know, half a decade worth of experience running it, even though he's only in his second year in college football. Just can you speak to what makes that such a difficult combination to defend? And and, and is it apparent to you watching Delora? Because obviously we've seen young quarterbacks and sometimes they can struggle with the scheme. Does it feel like it's a seamless transition from him from high school to now? And and just how much of a mastery do you feel like he has?
2: Yeah, well, I think what makes it tough to defend is that, you know, if you look at the air raid, which was tough for a lot of teams to defend, but there was four or five routes. I mean, it got to a point, especially towards the end of Leach's years, where opposing DBs, especially Washington and Cal, they'd be calling out the routes before the play happened because they knew it was coming. The run and shoot's a lot more complex. There's a lot more you can do out of it. And a lot of it relies on, you know, a receiver recognizing space. So it's a lot of option routes where the receiver starts his route and then he recognizes, all right, I'm either doing an out, I'm doing a post, I'm doing a, sh- or a streak. So it, it, that's what makes it tough to defend is, you know, the receiver before the play, he may not even know what route he's going to run. So obviously it becomes tough for the secondary to recognize that. Um, and I think that's what has made it, when it's been successful, it's when the receivers are running really good routes and the ball is getting out quickly. You know, they haven't had a whole lot of vertical success this year. Um, So I think when they've been at their best, it's crosses, slants, posts. Um, You know, they run a route combination where they have, they'll have two guys on on an outside and inside. One guy goes on like a quick out. The other guy goes long. It forces the safety into a decision. Um, And in terms of Delora, he's got a a very good grip on it. I think he's still working through that transition from high school to college. Um, You know, he grows with every game. He gets better with every game. Uh, I think the most – the biggest thing with him is that it's all come down to maturity. And and as he's matured, he's become a better player, you know, on on and off the field in terms of his leadership and what he's been able to do. Um, But, yeah, I would say that the biggest thing that makes the run and shoot tough and, and unique is that it puts a lot of pressure on the receivers to pick the right route. And you have to have good chemistry with the quarterback and receivers. You know, it's not like the air raid where throw the ball off, your receiver's going to be able to make a play. If you don't have chemistry and you don't have guys on the same page, it will not work. And I think has done a lot, a lot of work and taken a lot of steps to develop that chemistry with, you know, five, six receivers
1: because they use so many in in kind of rotating. Uh, just, you know, real quick, um, you mentioned this earlier about how Washington State is running the ball, like basically more than they have in the last 10, 15 years. Uh with Borgie and Macintosh, you know, how, how does the offense like how do they play off of Dolores' strengths in the and the run and shoot and, and how that rushing offense has like developed this year?
2: Yeah, well I think it honestly a big way it's developed is just that they get the ball. I mean <laughs> you know, these guys have been good running backs and they've had success. Um, but they're used very differently. You know, Borgie was on the Bolitnikoff award watch list before the year for receiving, and I think he's only got ten or so catches. He doesn't really work out of the backfield. Whereas with Mike Leach, he's getting 100 catches a year. Easy. Um, right. But I think the way they work off the Laura is that, first off, McIntosh is an elite pass blocker. I mean, extremely, extremely uh, good in pass blocking. Forgy's getting there. So they, they can utilize them in pass blocking situations. Um, and I think Delora's threat to run provides a lot in terms of what they can do with the read option. So they can fake it, you know, they, they actually, they'll run an option play, like a straight-up Navy-style option at the goal line um, that, that they'll do, the try and, you know, fool defenses. And just the way that those two can both run and catch if need be. Um, and they're very different, too. You know, Borgie's stronger when he gets to the outside. You know, he can turn on the Jets and, and you know, make guys miss. Macintosh is more, give me the ball, I'm going to run through somebody. You know, he he said, when we talked to him a few weeks ago, he said he, he runs like he's 250 pounds and he's, you know, 200. Um, but I, I think there's just a, a dynamic with the three of them of what they can do in terms of their mobility and just their explosiveness that kind of makes them a very dangerous three-headed monster, per se. Right,
0: we're going to wrap it up here with a couple questions um, more. Uh, what are three things Washington State must do to win? What are three things... They cannot let Oregon do so that they can win. And I guess you've already seen this question because I sent it. And, you've, and, by the way, those listening might have seen the written version of this already um, on DuckTaracter.com in our Know the Foe series. Um, hypothetically, if somebody were to just ask, and this is the first time you've seen this question, Jamie, what, where does your mind go?
2: <laughs> they have to turn Oregon over. I mean, that's what, that is absolutely what it comes down to. You know, their lone loss. And, and Washington State season is, for a lot of people, broken into two sections. There's the first four games where Jaden Delora wasn't playing. Um, or wasn't like as much because of injury you know he didn't start against Utah State he didn't play against Utah and he was hurt halfway through USC they were one and three in those games since then they're four and one Um, and the lone loss they didn't force any turnovers against BYU they have to get the ball back because the defense is far improved from what it's been in years past but they still give up yards they still are are vulnerable to giving up 50 60 yard drives but they cash in by turning teams over they have to do that Um, they have to get Oregon behind the sticks. I think I mentioned that earlier. If Oregon gets into third and two situations, Washington State is going to really struggle to win. If they get them third and nine, that's where they kind of want them. Uh, But on that token, they have to be able to monitor Anthony Brown's mobility. Uh, You know, they haven't seen a ton of mobile quarterbacks this year. Uh, Really, with the exception, I would say, of Jaden Daniels. uh, They really haven't seen that much in terms of guys that can really, really move. Um, But it's always been a problem for Washington State. Dating years back, mobile quarterbacks have killed them um, if they don't put an emphasis on it. So I do think they're going to have to have a spy, whether that's Jihad Woods or Justice Rogers. They've gotta, they have to spy on, on Brown because of his mobility and his ability to, to make plays with his legs. You know, If you watch the Washington game, which I'm sure all of your subscribers and, and viewers did, you saw him make those plays. Even on the touchdown pass to, to Devin Williams, he gets out of the pocket with his legs, finds a wide open guy. You know, that that's a lethal, lethal weapon that the Cougars have to make sure he can't utilize. Um, and then on the flip side, they can't let Dye get into a rhythm. You know, I, I think so much of what he did last week is he gets six, seven carries the first 10 times, 12 times. Well, there's, he's not going to get stopped. He's confident. He's running well. You know, if Washington State can slow him down on the first few carries, maybe get him out of that rhythm, that's where they can, you know, I think maybe find an advantage in, in that run attack. Um, they can't let Oregon live in the backfield, which is a tall task considering what Oregon's bringing off the edge. Um, but they have to—they have to design plays that get the ball out quick. If Washington State takes five, six step drops, Jaden Delora's is going to spend his day on the turf, even even with his mobility and even with what has been a much improved offensive line over the last couple of weeks. Um, and then I think the biggest thing—and this is, you know, this has been a problem—is Washington State's got to wrap up. There's, there's been ups and downs of that. The BYU game in particular, they tackled terribly. And Dickert came out and said, we did not tackle well. And that was what killed them in that game. They were much more sound against Arizona State. Uh, when, they make, when they make contact with whoever it is, die or, or, uh, or Cardwell or whoever's running the ball, they have to get them on the ground. Um, if they let the running backs or even Brown or the receivers keep their feet moving, I mean, that, right there, that's the seven, eight yards I was talking about on first down that gets them into the second and third and short.
0: Jamie, you have been an excellent guest. Definitely live up to the correspondence. I think that was your title. The title that Bob sent me was your correspondent for Coop Fan. I think you I like it. that. Uh, I- I've appreciated your time. It's been great getting the opposing perspective on this. I will see you at Autzen Stadium in, well, 48 hours from when this podcast drops, more than that from when we're actually recording it. Uh, there's, there's a peek behind the curtain. Um, I guess just last thoughts here. Are you excited to make it? You said this before, this, is your first, uh, this will be your first time at Autzen Stadium. Uh, we're excited to host you. Hopefully uh, you go home, I guess, not in a good mood. but. Um.
2: <laughs> I hope the opposite. Yes, we <laughs> do. Uh, but, yeah, no, stoked to get down there. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure I'll see you guys down there. I'll be the guy with the long hair.
0: Okay, let's <laughs> we'll, we'll see if we can figure that out. There might not be many others like you. Um, I'm trying to mimic it. I'm trying to get close, but you've got it's, the head start. It's good progress.
2: It's good progress.
0: Appreciate that, Jamie. All right, for Jared Mack and myself, Eric Scopel, this has been another episode of the Auts and Audible's podcast.
1: Peace.